you to turn your Bibles to Romans chapter 3 and just remain standing as we read the Word of God. Romans chapter 3 and verse 9. Romans 3 and verse 9. What then, are we Jews any better off? No, not at all. For we've already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin. As it is written, none is righteous, no, not one. No one understands, no one seeks for God. All have turned aside, together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Their throat is an open grave, and they use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asp is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. In their paths are ruin and misery. In the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world may be held accountable to God. For by the works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes knowledge of sin. Father, may you open our eyes of our understanding that we would see your truth, and that your truth would have such impact on every single soul today, that you would arrest us, that you would apprehend us, and that we'd be lost in the wonder of who you are and that your fear would so permeate this place, your fear would grip uh, us, the unsaved, with the terror of condemnation and with those who are your children with the refreshing purity of your fear that promotes holy worship. And so, Father, we're a needy people. There's not a single person in the sound of my voice, even the ones whose voice that is not in desperate need of you showing us truth. And so please, Father, have your perfect way. May you find us to be soft clay in the hands of the divine potter. For Jesus' sake and for his honor and glory. Amen. You may be seated. We've been working our way through the second section of Romans chapter 3. And this unfolds as we've known in three sections. I won't go back and break down all these sections. But what we have Paul doing in the second section in which we are is he is bringing guilt to all of humanity. He has brought every single person, Gentile and Jew alike, to the point of you are under condemnation, your wrath, the wrath upon you is due. And as he comes into verses 9 and 10, his final shot across the bow, his, uh, his final blow that brings everyone to that condition is the evidence by the Word of God. He has said what people are by his own observation, which was correct. He's in a corrupt place in Corinth. He sees the unfolding of Romans 1 right before his very eyes. The lest anyone, the Gentile or the Jew, who's a moralist or religionist, would say, well, Paul, that's those people. Paul would now say, the oracles of God that you were given bring you under condemnation. Verse 9, what then, are we Jews any better off? Not at all. For we have charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin as it is written. And what Paul does is he takes the scriptures themselves and he brings humanity, as I mentioned, guilty before God. In verses 10 through 12, he has defined the human condition. None is righteous, no one understands, no one seeks for God. The totally depraved is what he defines. Man's condition is morally destitute of a heart to want God. His mind is corrupt and his will is held captain to sin and Satan. And then in verses 13 through 18, which we found ourselves in the last couple of weeks, he describes the human condition. From what they are, this is what they do, and that applies in the Christian experience as well. And what would Paul say in verses 13 through 18? Number one, that the condition that produces this conduct is such that they have ungodliness in their speech. Out of the heart the mouth speaks, and Paul would say their throat is an open grave. Their tongues are used to deceive the venom of ass, the poison, deadly poison 
of the viper is into their lips, under their lips, and their mouth is full of curses. So Paul would bring condemnation to all by the ungodliness in their speech. It's destructive and deceiving power. And then in verses 15 through 17, he would bring condemnation by the ungodliness of their actions. And their actions are such as they are, their feet are swift to shed blood. In their past are ruin and misery. And the way of peace they have not known. And as we look at humanity from the inside out and all around us, we do see that the wickedness of the heart, the total depravity of the heart, the mind, and the will produces this unbridled language of poison, of speech. And it also produces the actions that are always bent towards violence, towards the carnage of destruction. But then in verse 18, which we find ourselves today, is that Paul would bring a summary statement. He would say, this is the real cause of why they are what they are. This is the real issue that produces the totally depraved individual and thus society. This is the real issue underlying the human heart that is in rebellion against God. And he says in verse 18, there is no fear of God before them. There is no fear of God before them. And Paul, once again, uh, would come to the oracles of God. He would not say, this is my opinion, though it's very evident by what I observe in society. He says, but this is what God himself has said. And as he did in verses 10 through 17, quoting the Old Testament, he now quotes Psalm 36, 1, where the writer says, transgression speaks to the wicked deep in his heart. There is no fear of God before his eyes. These two verses, these two verses of Romans 3.18 and Psalm 36.1, recognizing there's no fear, absolutely zero fear of God before the eyes of the wicked. These are deep wells, deep wells requiring us individually as well as corporately to spend much time pouring down into those wells to understand the significance of the fear of God or the lack of fear of God. If you would do simply a brief word study in the Bible of fear as it pertains explicitly to God, it appears 150 to over 175 times. The dominant theme in the Bible is not the love of God, it is the fear of God. However, don't misunderstand what I said, they're inseparable. For where the true fear of God is, it is bathed in the love of God. And if we were to extend this fear from the biblical context of it referring to God, if you add the illustrated or the implied mentions of it, you now extend the references to over hundreds. There are hundreds of it. And when it comes to the fear of God, there is nothing more contrasting and more distinguishing between the godly and the ungodly. If the Bible is so dominant with the fear of God, and that it is indeed the mark of the, of the godly, when Paul would say in Romans 3.18, there is no fear of God, there is no greater contrast. The chief characteristic in the godly is they walk in the fear of God. The chief characteristic of the Christian is this walking in the fear of God. Conversely, the chief characteristic in the God, ungodly is the absence of this fear. And this is exactly what Paul was saying. He's bringing up the summary statement that you do what you do, wicked. You say what you say, wicked. Because you lack the fundamental essence of what it means to be in a relationship with God. And that is his fear. His fear. Now if you notice what he does say in verse 18. He mentions still yet another human organ. The eyes. This is the sixth time. He's mentioned throat, tongues, lips, mouth, feet, and now the eyes. So why the eyes? Well, he wants to make the accusations that, that he gives to the Gentile and Jew alike. He, the accusations, they come with a vivid picture because of the eyes. Because the eyes are the gateway to the mind and the heart. It's what you look upon goes into you. 
And in many cases, sadly, we could all say that we have looked on things that we should not have looked upon, and it's written on the hard drive of our minds. It's written in the very, the, the very depths of our heart. David, I'm sorry, but Job would say, I've made a covenant with my eyes that I would not look upon a maid. And so when he's referring to the eyes here of the wicked, he's referring to their understanding, or I should say, their lack of understanding. Oftentimes we read, and I'll just give you two examples, we often read of the eyes, not in a literal sense, but in the means by which we have spiritual understanding. That we have spiritual insight, spiritual illumination. David would tell us in Psalm 119, 18, if David is the author, Open my eyes that I might behold wondrous things out of your law. Paul's prayer to the Ephesian believers. Believers, remember, in Ephesians chapter 1, he would say, For this reason, because I've heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love towards all the saints, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remember you in my prayers. That the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him. And I hope you pray that every day. And then he would say, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you. What are the riches of the glorious inheritance of the saints and the power that works within you. Since eyes are organs of sight, they direct our steps. They direct the execution of our wills. For the godly, Hebrews 13, Hebrews 12, it tells us what? That we are to look unto Jesus. Looking unto Jesus. And it's a looking that is in his fear that causes us to follow. The ungodly, what do they look at? Due to the absence of the fear of God, they look to themselves and are directed by their lust. Directed by their passions. Al Martin, some of you may have heard of him. uh, A great man of God in our generation. Al Martin used this illustration of the eyes of the ungodly. And he says this. In regards to them lacking the fear of God. Quote, when they get up in the morning. Those who don't fear God. When they get up in the morning. And contemplate the coming day. They look out at life without having superimposed on their moral vision, the being of God, the claims of God, the character of God, the law of God, and the judgment of God. They go out into their day with no fear of God superimposed in their life, end quote. That's what Paul is saying. That the wicked, in verse 18, there is no fear of God. There is no contemplation. There is no superimposed filter in their lives of the the being of God, of the claims of God, of the character of God, of the law of God, and the judgment of God. Now as you read that, you're easy to say that's so true. That is the ungodly world we live in. And as I ask myself, I would now ask you, do you start your day thinking of the fear of God? If the fear of God is the soul of godliness, as John Murray would say, and if the fear of God is the dominant theme throughout the Bible, and one of the high marks of the character of the godly, does it not behoove us to ask the question, do I walk in the fear of God? Do I walk opposite of what the world does, as Paul would say in Romans 1 or 3.18, there is no fear of God? Friends, when the fear of God is absent, nothing but wicked chaos results. Where there's no fear of God, wicked chaos results. I think it's ironic uh, when you see the ungodly who never think of God, who rush into their day just about their lust, their passions, it's all about them. No fear of God. As Al Martin would say, that there's no imposing upon them the claims of God, the character of God, the law of God. I find it very interesting that though the ungodly will have no fear of the eternal God and absolutely no fear of the judgment that's coming upon them, but yet they'll fear death. They'll fear man. They'll fear pandemics. They'll fear the temporal things of the world. And does that not reveal for us the insanity of sin? 
is that the totally depraved person, the person outside of Jesus Christ, they're not fearing the most, the, the, the most important issue of life, the relationship with God. Jesus says, don't fear him who's able to uh, kill the body. Fear him who is able to cast into hell. So this fear of God, this fear of God as we look at it today, and we're going to look at it in a way that you may not think. But before we get there, I want, you, I want to remind you of two things. If you're a Christian today, I want you to remind you of two things. This is very important. Is that when we're quick to condemn a society that has no fear of God, remember, we were there. We were there. There's not a single Christian alive that, uh, born, didn't, that, it was, that had the fear of God in them. And when you're quick to look out, And yes, we have a very wicked society that has no fear of God. When you're quick to look out, pause for a moment and thank God that that's what you once were, but that's not what you are. And don't do that from a pharisaical self-righteousness that looks down on the sinner. But look at in the, in the humbling, humbling way that God gave you illuminating grace, not because you deserved it, but because he chose to give it to you. And if anything, this fear of God that we see in society, it should cause us as Christians to become so humbled and realize that, oh, but for the grace of God, there go I. There's something else that we need to remind ourselves, not only that we were once there. I find it very interesting. The Apostle Paul never lost sight of what he was. Even his last couple letters. I was the chief of sinners, but I was showed mercy. He never lost sight of what he was. But he didn't live listening to the whispers of the devil of what he once was. The second thing I want you to remember as we look at this fear of God or the lack of fear of God is that you did not generate it. Everything that you have as a Christian, there is no self-made Christian. It isn't about our diligence. It isn't about our efforts. Those matter. But understand that everything, every achievement, every good work, all flows from the sovereign goodness of God's grace. Even the fear of God, He gave that to you. In the New Covenant, Jeremiah would tell us in Jeremiah 32, 38 through 41, And they shall be my people, and I will be their God. I will give them one heart and one way that they may fear me forever. For their own good and the good of their children after them, I will make with them an everlasting covenant that I will not turn away from doing good to them. And I will put the fear of me in their hearts. If you're a Christian today, you can take a second now and praise God that he wrote his fear on your heart. Because that is one of the strongest deterrents against sin that he's given you. It's his fear. And I will put their fear in me that they may not turn from me. Now, as we look at verse 18 of Romans 3.18, I want us to look at that in the opposite. Oftentimes, you look at the opposite to get a deeper understanding and clarity of what is clearly said. There is no fear of God before their eyes. So what we're going to look at today, Lord willing, we're going to look at some elements, define and then look at some elements that are present in the true fear of God. Because it's when you see the true that you actually see the, uh, the counterfeit or the false. And so by reading verse 18, there is no fear of God, and we focus on the true fear of God, then we'll see why the world is like it is, and it will also serve as a very good tool of self-examination in our own lives. If you were to ask me that one of the, the, the great challenges, even the ailments that faces the contemporary church today, where is the fear of God? And I would ask you as you came into worship today, do you realize that you are in the presence of the living God who is a consuming fire? And that you sit right now under the omniscient eyes of God who looks at you and looks at your heart and looks at my heart and evaluates clearly without error whether we are worshiping in spirit and truth and whether even now we're attentive to the things that he would have for us in his word or are we already planning this afternoon or moved ahead to next week 
That's an indication of no fear of God, even in the believer. So we're going to look at this from the opposite. We're going to look at what the true fear of God looks like so that we'll get a clearer understanding is what the absence is. I know you've heard the story. You've heard the, the illustration. It's, it's, it goes everywhere. Um, it's that about how they train federal agents or, or train bank uh, tellers and stuff to recognize counterfeit you know, money. You know, I hesitate to use this because you all know. And you're like, oh, yeah, I've heard that. You know, and that's true. We have. Is that they train agents by looking more at the real than the false. Well, as I thought about that, I thought, you know, I've heard that. But is it true? I don't know. I mean, it sounds good, you know. And so I, I, I thought about this, and, and I came across something that Tim Challies did. And if, you have, if you're not familiar with Tim Challies, I encourage you to read his books uh, and, and read his blog. In particular, I put, a plug, I put a plug in for his recent book on Seasons of Sorrow. If you know someone that's going through a difficult time, they've lost a loved one suddenly, or just the, the, the hardness of, of death. He wrote a very personal book, Seasons of Sorrow, The Pain of Loss and the Comfort of God, over the sudden death of his son, Nick. It's a powerful read, and I would encourage you to use it in ministry to hurting people. But at any rate, Chalice, too, he had read of this illustration and heard this illustration in sermons about federal agents are taught to recognize counterfeit by focusing on the real. Well, what he did is he called uh, the Bank of Canada. He actually called the Bank of Canada near his town in, in, in Canada, Toronto, I believe. And so what he did was, is he asked for an appointment with a counterfeit specialist. He wanted to know if this was true. So he got the appointment. And he went in and was very helpful, he said. She was very kind, and she affirmed him, yeah, that's exactly what we do. We take our agents, we take our specialists, and they so hammer home on the real that when the, when the false pops in, it, it's easily noted. Well, she actually invested some time. It obviously, it took a couple hours. She did that with Tim. She showed him a bunch of counterfeits and, and, and the real, and he concentrated on the real and the real, and then she gave him a stack of bills with all the counterfeit mixed into the real. And I, as I read the article, Tim went on to say, I got every one of them right. As he went through, the counterfeit stuck out so, so profound because he was so versed in the real. And so that's what I want us to do is we look at verse 18. I could ask you the question, well, what does, the, what, does the, uh, what does a person look like that has no fear of God? And you would get some of those. But I would, I would challenge us to do, do this from the opposite. Look into our own lives to see the presence of the fear of God. And then in seeing the present, the real, we'll be able to discern the false. And we'll be able to define what society looks like. In verse 18. So verse 18 becomes explained by its opposite. First thing we want to do is define it. Define it. And for you Christians, uh, if I was to ask you what the definition of, of the fear of God is, you would probably come up with the statement, reverential awe. And that would be true. I think it goes far more than that. Again, from Al Martin, I want to quote him from his book. He wrote a little book called The Forgotten Fear. Where have all the God fears gone? And Martin, in his book, wrote this definition of the fear of God. I've included it in your outline for your own edification. The fear, of, uh, the fear it's the fear of veneration, of honor and all, which we regard God. It is a fear that leads us not to run from Him, but to draw near to Him through Jesus Christ and gladly submit to Him in faith, love, and obedience. In a very fundamental way, the ungodly fear of God caused us to run from him. That's what Adam had after he sinned. The godly fear of God given to us at new birth, it causes us to run to him. But I want you to understand that where the veneration, the honor, and the all of God is in the believer... There's not only this drawing near to him as a father, but there's also this drawing near to him with a holy terror, a holy fear that does not want to break the law or the heart of God. 
The fear of God should grip a Christian with such burning passion that we will not even begin to toil with temptation. We will run as far as we can from temptation. Here's a couple applications of this definition of the fear of God. What about Joseph and Potiphar's wife? She propositions him. It was in the privacy of the palace. Anybody that would have tried to say anything if she did this would have been murdered or, or executed. It was a pretty safe ground, humanly, to commit this sin. And yet, what does he do? He looks at her after he continues refusing her. Says, how can I do this great wickedness and sin against God? You know what that statement is? It's the fear of God. His fear of God caused him to run from sin. And it wasn't the slavish fear, oh, I can't get caught doing this. No, it was a love for God. And we know Job... Job's reputation was one that he what? He was blameless. He was upright. And he feared God and turned away from evil. Friends, let me ask you a penetrating question. Are you known as a Christian who fears God? Because where the fear of God is, there's the humility of Christ. There's the meekness. And there's also this resolve is, I will not do this wickedness. I will battle against my inward struggles every day. Well, it goes on. The application of this fear of God, as defined by Martin, it occurs in the Exodus. Remember when the Israelites were standing on the shore of the Red Sea, the Egyptians just changed their mind. Pharaoh says, you know, no way. He comes after them. They see the cloud of dust coming. They look out over the water. They had nowhere to go. You either... You either go back into captivity or worse or slaughtered by the Egyptians or you step in there and you try to cross the Red Sea and you drown. They had nowhere to go. And so what has happened? Thus the Lord saved Israel that day from the hand of the Egyptians. And you know the story. And Israel saw the Egyptians dead on the seashore. And Israel saw, get this, they saw the great power of the Lord against the Egyptians so the people feared him. The result of the display of God's power caused his people to shake in fear. And it was a good fear. We move into the New Testament and the application of this fear of God in the church. Acts 5, 5 and 11. We see the sin of Ananias and Sapphira and we see the discipline, the quick discipline of the church. Sin was not tolerated. And when Ananias heard these words, he fell down and breathed his last. Can you imagine if that happened right now? And great fear came upon all who heard of it. And great fear came upon the whole church. You know what empowers the church? Holiness. Do you know where holiness comes from? The fear of God. Or as R.C. Sproul would say, the trauma. The trauma of God's holiness. Ecclesiastes chapter 12. I, I'm still in the introduction. I, I know that. <laughs> Friends, this is so important. This is so important because I've seen it, how easily the fear of God wanes in my own life. And when the fear of God is absent in the life of the Christian... And the fear of God is absent in the life of the church. You have no power. You can have schemes and you can have programs and you can have knowledge and you can have everything else and you can look right like the Ephesian church in the Revelation. And yet, if we don't have the fear of God, there's no power. There's no power. Ecclesiastes 12, 13 would tell us, the end of the matter, all has been heard. Fear God and keep His commandments. For this is the whole duty of man. Do, do you live that way? And I'm not, I'm not going like this. I'm going like this. Do we live that way? Do we understand that all of life is to be simplified, not easy, but simplified under two things. Obey God by fearing God. Those are connected. And prepare for judgment. That's what life is. Preparing for judgment. By what? Fearing God and obeying Him. Well, let's quickly, let's look through now the elements. The elements. So Paul would say there is no fear of God. So I'm going to give the positive what the fear of God looks like in the believer. And this isn't all-inclusive. We could do weeks and weeks and weeks on a series on the fear of God. We could. We're not. But it would be easy, and I think it does deserve that type of attention, to take the fear of God and trace it through Scripture 
and then find ourselves repenting because we don't have it. I know that's a hard statement to hear, but I do believe that the fear of God is one of the most important recoveries that the church of Jesus Christ needs today. Let's take a look at the elements. I'm only going to give you five, and there's far more. But I've resisted the temptation to do a series within a series. If that's the case, then Romans would last for a long, long time. Let's take a look at this first. What is one of the first elements in the fear of God that is not present in Romans 3.18 in society? The first one, there's this overwhelming awe of the person of God. There's this overwhelming awe of the person of this God. And it's based on how he reveals himself. Be very careful not to attempt to worship or follow, follow a God based on what you think he is, but on based on who he says he is. Job says, I have spoken of things I did not know. Isaiah 66, the call to worship today, thus says the Lord, heaven is my throne and the earth is my footstool. What is the house that you would build for me and what is the place of my rest? All these things my hand has made. And so all these things came to be, declares the Lord. But this is the one to whom I will look. He who is humble, contrite in spirit, and what trembles. The word tremble is fear at my word. It means to be fearful. It means to be one who reveres the word of God. Who understands the privilege of the oracles of God before us, which the Jews did not. And God has, has told us, if you want to know me and you want to walk with me and not just have your head full of knowledge about me, if you want to really experientially know me, then you need to understand a couple things. Number one, I am sovereign over all things. I control all things. And that I will come to you if you meet the criteria. And the criteria is humility, brokenness, and trembling at his word. And when those three things are operative in the life of the Christian, then we're, we're going to know the Christ who has promised that if you obey me, I will manifest myself to you. Now this all of God's person, it also includes a delight in fearing the Lord. If I was to, te- if I was to tell you that the Bible teaches that we are to delight in fearing God, would that seem a little strange to you? Nehemiah's prayer, Nehemiah 1.11, O Lord, let your ears be attentive to the prayer of your servant and to the prayer of your servants who delight to fear your name. Why would Nehemiah say he delights to fear his name? Well, the Isaiah passage opens that up because to delight to fear in him means that we are, we are meeting the criteria to know him. Humble, contrite in spirit, and trembling at his word. Now, this all is not slavish fear, as I mentioned. It is a holy affection and reverence to draw near to God. But it's a drawing near that we're not just slap happy, uh, he's my daddy in heaven. That's not what we're talking about. Yes, Abba Father is true in the scripture. But don't use that as a default for not fearing him. Don't use that to lighten the gravity of his glory. The word glory means gravity. It's heavy. And to have a light view of God reveals two things. One, we really don't know him. And secondly, that there's no fear. I would encourage you to do a study. I think there's 12 times, maybe it's 14 times, of people who have encountered God, Old Testament, New Testament, have been exposed to him. What's the response of every one of them? And I fell on my face as a dead man. I fell on my face as a dead man. The very one that laid his head on the bosom of Christ. So the first element then is this awe, this overwhelming awe of his person that produces within us a humility and a brokenness that causes us to tremble at his word. Now, what about the world? No way. Romans, Romans 3.18, there is no fear of God before their eyes. You know what they do? They have no sense of all. In fact, they have no holy worship. What they have is blasphemous self-worship because they have no fear. We saw that in Romans chapter 1. Paul would say, therefore, they gave them, they, he gave them up to the lust of their hearts in purity because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped 
and serve the creature rather than the creator. Do you know what the lack of fear of God does in humanity? It causes you to be a self-worshipper. Because you and I are created to worship. We're going to worship. The question is who we worship. And the fear of God, the awe of the person, it humbles us in the dust. And we cry out like Isaiah, woe is me, I am totally undone. And here's the glory of the gospel. In our undoneness, he comes down with the wonders of redemption and says, I will forgive your sins. Come and let us reason together. And I will write my fear upon your heart that will release you from the bondage of sinful fear. There's a second element in the fear of God, which is absent from the world. Not only is there this overwhelming awe of the person of God, and friends, I would ask you to evaluate yourself. Get alone with God and take these and ask yourself the hard question. Am I walking in the fear of God? Do I have this overwhelming sense of who He is that causes me to run from all sin, that causes me to check all sin, not out of fear that He's going to punish you, That's been relieved at the cross. But that you love him so. And that you want to do nothing. As a sinner, you broke his law. As a Christian, you break his heart. And it's important that we see that this fear is what insulates us. And causes us to see the affections and attractions of Christ are far more than the foolishness of the world. Here's a second mark in the godly. And we'll look at the contrast of of 318, those who do not have this. There's a willful recognition and submission to God's sovereign authority. As a Christian, you delight to submit to him. Now, I'm not saying it's easy. I'm not trying to paint this picture of, you know, wake up in the morning, happy, happy in Jesus all day long. Here we go. Put it on cruise control. You're good. I'm not saying that. I wish there was a spiritual vitamin. I could just pop in and voila, instant obedience. It doesn't work that way. But I tell you what it, what it does, the Christian under the new covenant, the Christian who's been born again, there is a glad, willful submission. Yes, we fight. Yes, we take three steps forward, two steps backward for a one-step gain. Yes, we do. But deep down in your heart, as a true believer, you know you long for the day of absolute, complete, unrivaled submission to his lordship. Psalm 5, 7 really says, and the Psalms in general. Psalm 7 says, but the I, through the abundance of your steadfast love, will enter your house. I will bow down. That is a willful submission towards your holy temple in the fear of you. Our worship should be marked by fear. And I'm not saying it isn't, but it should be marked by fear. There should be holy joy, holy love. Holy fellowship based on the fact that the God who says heaven is my my throne and the earth is my footstool. As he comes down and he meets with us in the corporate setting to where we know we're in the presence of someone who's not like us and loves us. That's how it's supposed to be. The Revelation 19.4 and the 24 elders and the four living creatures fell down. And worship God who was seated on the throne saying, Amen, hallelujah. And from the throne came a voice saying, Praise our God, all you his servants, you who fear him. Small and great. Worship is not singing some song that's all about the worshiper that makes you feel good. Worship and the songs we sing and we do... And the worship team under Caitlin's leadership, we do a good job of making sure that our theology is what we sing. Is what we sing. Praise our God, all you his servants, you who fear him small and great. Now when this fear of God is willful submission, is that we his, his people, we understand that we're in a covenant relationship with him, free of condemnation. But we also know that it is a fearful thing to fall in the hands of a living God. That's not con- a contrast or a contradiction. Hebrews 10, 30, 31 says, For we know him who said, Vengeance is mine, I will repay. And again, the Lord will judge his people. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. 
You know what a healthy fear of God does in the life of his children? It reminds of Ecclesiastes, uh, the last of Ecclesiastes 12. This is the whole duty of man. Fear God, keep his commandments, prepare for judgment. And I think as we get older, we start seeing that. I hope we get it when we're younger. Because we, we have a tendency when we're younger to look ahead. What if today is your last day? What if you're 20, 30, 40, and you're planning your future, and nothing wrong with that, but what if God looks at you and says, it's over? Won't you be glad you look back and you oriented your life around, fear God, keep His commandments, and prepare for judgment? Well, the the believer does this. The believer willfully recognizes and submits to God's sovereign authority. But what about the wicked? What about Romans 3.18? There is no fear of God before their eyes. What about those people? Well, we've already seen they have no awe of his person. They are self-worshippers. Well, now we see something else in these unsaved, wicked people, totally depraved. There's no fear of God before their eyes. This is how they are. Remember the parable of Jesus and the ten minus? Luke 19, 11. As they heard these things, Jesus proceeded to tell a parable. Because he was near to Jerusalem, because they supposed that the kingdom of God was to appear immediately... He said, therefore, a nobleman went into a far country to receive for himself a kingdom and then return. Calling ten of his servants, he gave them ten minas and said to them, engage in business till I come. But his citizens hated him and sent a delegation after him saying, we do not want this man to reign over us. That's what the, the lack of fear of God does. The ungodly says, I don't want this man to rule over us. We don't want this God. The believer who's walking in the fear of God says, I want this God to rule over me. I want this Lord to be Lord of my life. And the wicked goes opposite. There's no fear of God before their eyes in this evidence because they will say, I don't want this man to rule over me. Number three. Here's the third element in the healthy fear of God in contrast to there is no fear of God is that there's a deep desire for God's kingdom to come. There's a deep desire for God's kingdom to come. Jesus tells us how to pray, shows us the template in the Sermon on the Mount. He says, Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. That's the very first petition. Did you notice that? The petition isn't about me. It's not about, it's not about us. The person walking in the fear of God, it's not about us. Your kingdom come. Hebrews chapter 11, I won't read the entire text, but we see that they're walking through life as strangers and exiles. Strangers and exiles, pilgrims. Why? Because they're looking for a kingdom. They're looking for a kingdom. The godly who fear him want his kingdom to come so that they will dwell with the king. The ungodly don't want his kingdom to come, but they don't want his punishment. Those who don't have the fear of God, they want to be free from the punishment of this God, but they don't want the God who will punish. They want free from punishment, but they also want free from Him. That's what no fear of God is. But not for the godly. So I'd ask you another penetrating question. Does your heart beat and yearn for the kingdom to come? And does it so break your heart that you see so many people outside of us that don't have the fear of God that they are not going to be in that kingdom and that you cause yourself to pray and beg God, bring more people into your kingdom and let me be an instrument. So the godly with the fear of God desire for his kingdom. They are are not attached to this world. And one of the things that will quiet your spiritual life and even quench the work of, of the spirit in you is if you are a Christian and you are attached to this world. In the upper, in the Olivet Discourse, <clears throat> Jesus says, because sin and lawlessness will abound, the love of many will wax cold. Number four, here's the fourth element in the godly fear uh, that is contrasted between the ungodly. Is that not only do they desire God's kingdom to come, but they desire God's will to be done. Again, from Matthew chapter 6, Jesus would say, Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come. And then he would say, Your will be done. Like the Christians yearning for the will of, for, for God's kingdom to come, he also and she also yearns for God's will to be done. The ungodly who had, do not have the fear of God, you know what they want? Their will to be done. Not his will. 
I said, Christian, this is a very penetrating thing. Is your life orchestrated more around your will? But in the self-deception, we say his will? Stephen Sharnick, who may have wrote the best theological work um, that we've known, the, uh, the existence and the attributes of God, it's, it's wonderful. Just re- recently been reprinted by uh, Crossway. Sharnick said this, quote, there is, a f- there is further a rising and swelling of the heart against the will of God, describing the atheist, the practical atheist. And we know that that happened in Romans chapter 1. Paul's just explaining what he's already said. In Romans chapter 1, verse 28 through 32, I won't read it all, but he says, though they know God's righteous degree that those who practice such things, they deserve to die, they not only do them, but they give approval or delight in those who practice them. That's what the ungodly, no fear of God, they delight in their will and they despise and rebel against his will. Is that not our world? May it not be our church. May we be careful that this fear that he wants us to walk in is part of salvation that is to be worked out every day. And then finally, finally we have the fifth mark in the godly, which is contrasted by the ungodly in this fear, is that the godly, they want the exaltation of Jesus Christ to happen. And they live to make much of Christ and little of themselves. They live to see him exalted. They live in all of his person. They live in submission to his sovereign authority. They live with the desire for his kingdom to come. They live with his will to be done. And ultimately, at the end of the day, they want to be able to lay their head down at night and say, Lord, I strive to make much of you and little of me today. Revelation 15, 1 through 4. Then I saw another sign in heaven, great and amazing, seven angels with seven plagues, which are the last for which then the wrath of God is finished. And I saw what appeared to be a sea of glass mingled with fire. And also those who had conquered the beast in its image and the number of its name standing beside the sea of glass with harps of God in their hands. And they sang the song of Moses, the servant of God and the song of the Lamb. Now notice, notice that the environment, the context of this worship. The exaltation of the Lamb. Great and amazing are your deeds, O Lord God, the Almighty. Just and true are your ways, O King of the nation. Who will not fear, O Lord, and glorify your name? The heartbeat of the Christian walking in the fear of God is, I want to make so much of Jesus Christ, even to my harm. I want people, when they leave my presence, they don't think about me. It's not about Jim. It's about Jesus. Make sure you strive to make so much of him and so little of yourself that when people leave your presence, they don't even know who you are. That only happens when the fear of God dominates the Christian. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and that at the name of Jesus, every knee shall bow. The godly, we bow now. Willingly. And someday we're going to bow before him and embrace the privilege before him to bow down. The ungodly, they're going to bow. They have no fear now, but they're going to fear. And they will bow. And the cry of Revelation 6, fall on us and hide us from the face of him who is seated on the throne and from the wrath of the God. For the great day of his wrath has come. Who can stand? And it won't be them. Actually, it won't be anybody. We'll be on our face. We'll be embracing his authority. We'll be embracing his love. We'll be embracing our submission. We will be rejoicing in the fear of the Lord forever. And the ungodly says, please hide from me. Throw the rocks on top of me. Let it crumble upon me. And he'll look at them and say, depart from me, you non-fears of me. Into a place of everlasting damnation. Now Paul, in verses 19 and 20, I'll just make a comment. We're moving on from this is that he would have a final word on the human condition. God's law and human accountability, God's law and the knowledge of guilt. And he would summarize this section with two things. Every mouth may be stopped. Friends, if you're not a Christian today and you don't believe the thing I'm telling you, it doesn't make it not true. And if you're outside of Jesus Christ, then that wrath is on you. And if you don't run to him now, and if you don't run to him, because you don't know if you might be killed in a car wreck when you leave the parking lot. 
And if you're not a Christian, I can't beg you enough to run to Christ and be free from the slavish fear that ensnares you from the devil and by your own total depravity and beg God in the power of the new covenant to come upon you and to give you the right fear of God that causes you to love him. And Christian, if, you're a Christ, if you are a Christian today, ask yourself, do I walk in the fear of God? Do I wake up, as Al Martin said, orienting my life around the character of God, the sovereignty of God, the love of God, the holiness of God, the word of God? Or do you wake up in the morning and say, oh man, another day, got a lot of stuff on my plate. Do you realize who put that on your plate? Do you realize it, it didn't just happen? If you walk in the fear of God, you're going to look at him with that overwhelming plate and you're going to say, I thank you. Because in my overwhelmingness, I get to see the power of God that delivered the people at the Red Sea to do a good work in me as well. And so Paul would also, closing out in verse 20, he would say the knowledge of sin comes by the law. We'll see that more when we get to Romans 7. I know that seems like a long ways. But Romans 7, he would say that I did not know that coveting was a sin until I read, you shall not covet. So let me make a quick application for this section as we move on now. Because we're about ready to move into one of the great transitions. But now, the righteousness of God. And so he's going to unfold the answer to all this depravity, this darkness that we've spent a few weeks in. Here's the application. Quickly, four. Number one, remember what and who we were. Remember what and who we are. We were not God-fearers. Remember that he gave us his fear in salvation. Even pray, to ask, even pray asking him to help you walk in that fear. Number three, be burdened for those outside of Christ. They have no idea. And ask God to give us a heart for the lost that we're able to speak into their lives. And finally, ultimately live every day in the fear of God. Because the fear of God is the heart of worship. It's the heart of holiness. It's the power behind the Christian life. And if we don't have the fear of God, then are we not just going through the motions? May God help us have that. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for your great love. And thank you that you took rebellious sinners, us, gave us your gospel so that we could have your fear. And Lord, as we look around and see a world that has no fear, help us to see that clear now that we see what the fear truly is. And may it so shape our hearts with compassion and shape our hearts to get the gospel into a world that has no fear. And may you be pleased to use us, not because of us, but use us as we seek to uphold your word. And that you'd make us a church that, as the book of Acts said, the church, they were unified and God added and multiplied because they walked in the fear of God. May that be true of us, Father. In Jesus' name, amen.